a Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is part one of Crisis Till Death, an eight-part weekly event looking at the period of time following Crisis on Infinite Earths all the way up to and including the death and return of Superman. In many ways, much of the entire first year of this Digging for Kryptonite podcast has been leading to this. Longtime listeners and viewers are well aware that the death of Superman is what got me into Superman and comics generally. And I knew that at some point in the first year of this podcast, I wanted to revisit that storyline that was so formative for me. And as I was planning ahead, I, I thought to myself, I've read this story numerous times over the years, not maybe as often as you might expect, but I've definitely revisited it from time to time, including just a few years ago. And I thought to myself, what can I do to make this different this time? How can I experience this story in a different way? And the first thing that I came to, it was staring right at me, was despite having started reading with The Death of Superman, I'll, I'll admit this now, and I know this has come up in other episodes, but I had never read the preceding year's worth of stories, the few years leading up to The Death of Superman. And I consider that to be my biggest gap as a Superman fan. And that's not to say that I've read and watched everything else. Of course not. Um, by the time this podcast series is done, <laughs> that, that might be different. But uh, nevertheless, I, I really looked at that period of time following Crisis on Infinite Earths, beginning with the John Byrne era, the post, post-Byrne era, Dawn of the Triangle era, leading into the death of Superman. I always consider that to be my biggest gap as a Superman fan for the reason that I started when I did. It always kind of struck me as odd that as a kid, I had never gone back, or as an adult, I had never gone back, and either through back issues or trades or digitally, I had never gone back and read those years leading into the death of Superman. And, you know, over the course of my journey as a comic book fan and reader and collector, you know, I'm no stranger to a back issue hunt or a trade paperback hunt or anything like that. So I couldn't really tell you why I never, I never sought out those stories before. I don't really have a good answer for that, but uh, in, in some ways I'm kind of glad that it worked out this way because now I get to experience much of it. I mean, really the vast majority of what I'm going to be talking about over these next few episodes, I'm reading for the first time. Um, some stories I had read before, um, but it was very, very piecemeal. So this is the first time that I'm really going through all of this in full. And I'm so happy that I can present that journey to you on the show. So I think it all worked out. And I think that I'm getting more out of the reading experience than I, than I probably would have otherwise. So uh, again, that's kind of how this, this came to be. I knew I wanted to cover Death of Superman. I thought, how can I experience it in a different way? And it's like, well, I have this huge gap in my fandom as a Superman reader. And now over the course of these episodes, I'm going to, to close that gap. And I really hope you enjoy everything that you're going to be hearing over uh, this, this eight-part weekly event. So we are adjusting, we're shifting from our normal bi-weekly schedule, and we'll be putting out these episodes uh, on a weekly basis for these next couple uh, of months. So 
again, we're starting in this episode with the John Byrne era. So, and I know, you know, regular longtime comics readers are, are likely well familiar with this, but in the mid 80s, DC Comics put out this year long uh, miniseries event called Crisis on Infinite Earths that streamlined its then somewhat convoluted continuity. So, after Crisis on Infinite Earths, you no longer had this multitude of other Earths and universes and realities out there. You had a singular Earth in a singular universe. And when it comes to Superman, you know, the, the company took the opportunity to really streamline and strip down uh, the character. So he was now once again the sole survivor of Krypton. You didn't have all these other Kryptonians out there. Um, his power level was scaled down. Clark Kent, the Clark Kent persona, was now no longer this uh, the, the, this weakling uh, and coward. Rather, um, Clark was now really confident and competent and, and capable. Uh, the Kents, who previously you know, had died before Clark became Superman, they are now alive and well. Uh, Lex Luthor was completely reimagined. He's no longer this uh, scientific genius in a green battle suit, but now he's this, uh, this evil businessman. So there, there was a lot that changed uh, coming out of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And the story that, of course, established all of this you know, right out of the gate was John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries. And we are not going to be covering that specifically on um, on this episode, um, simply because we covered it already in another episode uh, a while back uh, when we when we took a look at the post crisis tellings of Superman's origin. So that episode is already out, and in that installment, um, we took a, a very thorough look at uh, all of Burns' work uh, on the Man of Steel miniseries, as well as a trio of other miniseries that came out around the same time, World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of Metropolis. So if you're looking specifically for a conversation about that, that's already out there in another episode. In this episode, I am joined by 13thDimension.com editor-in-chief Dan Greenfield, and um, we are going to talk about John Byrne's run on the main Superman title. So Byrne wrote and drew Superman number 1 through 22, and that's what we're going to be covering in this episode. Next week, we'll be taking a look at what Byrne did on Action Comics, as well as what Marv Wolfman, Jerry Ordway, and later Byrne himself would do on Adventures of Superman. So that's what these first two episodes of our event are all about. Um, but again, in this installment, we're looking at Superman... Uh, 1 through 22. And like I said, I'm joined by Dan Greenfield. If you're not familiar with 13thDimension.com, I really encourage you to check it out. It's a fantastic site for comic book uh, news and interviews and retrospectives. Um, I've had the privilege of writing a number of articles for Dan. Um, it's it's always a pleasure. I always love to do it. It's a great site. If you're a comics fan, I really encourage you to check it out. Uh, thank you for joining us. I think this is going to be a, a really powerful, special run of episodes I've been looking forward to it. I hope you have as well. I hope you enjoy. So following a brief commercial break, you will hear my conversation with Dan. And we'll be right back. Shadadigans is a weekly podcast by dads sharing their fairly new dad experiences and also just talking about whatever. Listen, relate, and laugh. I was a guest on episode 90 and it was a blast. One of the hosts is a multiple guest of this show, Justin DeVoe. To follow Justin's fitness and cosplay journey, follow him on Instagram at Lobo. And if you're interested in starting or continuing your own fitness journey, check out Iron and Honor on Instagram. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. 
The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. If you enjoy this show, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I also hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. The support of my patrons enables me to produce this podcast, and patrons get rewards too, including exclusive episodes, advanced listens, and more. Sign up today and get instant access to the back catalog. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all of my patrons. I truly appreciate your support. Dan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. We were talking about that before we started recording. It's uh, been quite some time since we've podcasted together. This is your first time on Digging for Kryptonite, but you've been on my that's other true. podcast, My Comic Shop History, a bunch of times. Yes, that's true. And I always enjoy speaking with you. You're the biggest Batman fan I know, but I appreciate you <laughs> indulging me and coming on to talk some Superman. Oh, I'm, uh, you know, just because I love Batman doesn't mean I don't love other heroes, so... Superman, of course, is one of my favorites, and um, the Burn Run in particular is is you know has since it first appeared has has had a really special place in my heart. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, and having just reread it really for the first time since it came out, um, or at least you know a couple a few decades, it was uh, a really fun exercise. It was a gig. I liked it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. And, you know, when I thought about Burn Superman, you were the first person who came to mind and you have a terrific article on your website, 13thdimension.com, all about why the the Burn take on the character generally, but specifically that Man of Steel miniseries, uh, you know, resonates with you. Now, for this episode, we are focusing on Burn's run on the main Superman title, not necessarily the Man of Steel miniseries, which I covered on the podcast previously, uh, fairly recently. That being said... Uh, I do want to give you the floor for a moment. Would you like to, and I know the answer to this, but would you like to share with our audience why, why that Man of Steel miniseries, you know, meant so much to you? Because I know it is your preferred depiction of the origin in comics, right? Yeah, it still is. Um, I, I think that, the, and I think I might have even discussed this on one of, on one of the other podcasts with you, but in, in short... I was never a big Superman fan growing up as a kid. I mean, we had the George Reeves show on syndication. I liked it. And I knew Superman from the comics and Super Friends and you know cartoons and what have you. But for me, Superman really doesn't didn't resonate until Christopher Reeve and and the nineteen seventy eight movie and the first you know that and Superman two really changed my opinion of Superman. But even though I was trying to read the comics, it, it, it still didn't work for me. For you know, and it's no knock on the comics or people who absolutely love Silver Age, Bronze Age Superman. I'm just not one of them. So when when um, you know, DC announced that John Byrne was coming and that he was going to be redoing Superman from the ground up after Crisis on Infinite Earths, I was really excited because I thought, okay, this is an opportunity for me to try something new. This is I I do want to read Superman, but I want to read a Superman that I that I really would enjoy. And there was a lot of advanced buzz, and there was talk about how he was going to, to get rid of Superboy, and there was not going to be Supergirl anymore, and there was going to be all this stuff. 
And I thought it was really, really intriguing. And I liked the idea, of course, getting in on the ground floor, like I said, and everything was new and fresh and exciting after, after during and after crisis. And when I read it, I absolutely loved it. It came out every two weeks, read it as it came out, and it was like a special occasion every single time. And um, it felt like the comic book equivalent of a Netflix series. You know, I mean, it had that feel of an event every time, I would, you know, every every other week. And the the reason that I that it really spoke to me was because it really did intentionally or not borrowed from much of the Superman the movie approach to the character um, in terms of making Lex Luthor a businessman as opposed to a mad scientist by making, you know, his, the way they portrayed Lois, the way, you know, the Superman himself, his behavior, um, and the fact that there was no Superboy, the fact that he just basically went from, you know, Smallville and then went around the world somewhere, which we didn't see at the time, um, and really kind of got a feel for the character that way. So I felt like it, it related better to the Superman that I really enjoyed and was really familiar with. And it looked good. Yes. And yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about the art. Uh, now I appreciate you laying that out for us. And I, I mean, for the most part, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree and I'll really quickly just recap the, the recent episode that I did on the post-crisis origins. Cause we spent a, probably an hour on Burns' Man of Steel, as well as the three World of miniseries that he did subsequent to that. So we talked about World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of Metropolis. With Man of Steel in particular, I I enjoyed it overall, and I definitely appreciated that it was, you know, uh, well-told and well-crafted. My objection to it, I suppose, was a little bit more ideological. Like, I like that the emphasis was more on the man rather than the super. I like that. But I felt that burn overshot the mark a bit too much for my taste. I do like when there's a little bit more of a balance and even a little bit of a tension between the human and the Kryptonian side where, you know, Clark has to sort of reconcile that part of himself. So that was where it it lost me a little bit and, it, and in its depiction of Krypton. It wasn't, um, again, I guess it wasn't necessarily to my liking. And I know subsequent creative teams after burn leaves, they'll delve more into the, to the Kryptonian side, but that was my, I guess my overall assessment of man of steel itself. Well, I mean, keep in mind that at the time, you know, art and in particular comics, as we know, are not only is it cyclical, but it's reactive. You know, what burn was doing was a, basically a reaction against the, the past 50 years, the previous 50 years. So he was very intent on making those changes. He was very intent on, on changing sort of the nature of Superman. And I wouldn't say that he overshot. I would say that he leaned on it pretty heavily, more than I probably think that he should have. But I, I, it was obviously something that was important to him as a writer. I don't think it really resonated as well as it could have. But it's also like there's like one part of it that I still to this day really didn't make any sense to me is the idea that he was conceived on Krypton in his birthing chamber and he was born on earth. So that made him born. On, I was like, who cares whether he, whether he was a baby there or a baby here to me is immaterial. It's, it's, it's all about the experience. And what I did like about the idea was that because part of the reason that I was never a big old, you know, old time Superman fan is that I was never really a big fan of the Krypton stuff. I was really never a big fan of Candor and, and all of that. And a lot of people love it. And it, you know, it's, I don't want to sound like I hate fun, but it's just, it's just not, that's just not my style of storytelling that I like. And so this idea that it was more stripped down and 
that it was more earthbound was something that I found really appealing. Yes, and to a large extent, I did, you know, I, I did identify with that as well. Um, and all that being said, and I've said this on other episodes, you know, I, I grew up reading, even though I wasn't reading the Burn story specifically, I grew up reading the version of the character he crafted. So, you know, I've always had an appreciation. Um, I will say after Man of Steel, going into this reading project, I guess my expectations were somewhat measured. I didn't know quite how much I would I would really enjoy this, but I'm very, I'm happy to report. I'm happy to report. I really had a great time reading these issues. And what you and I are here to talk about specifically are issues one through 22 of the Superman title that Byrne wrote and drew. So from late 86 to 88, um, I want to ask you sort of the overall big picture question. Cause again, I know you read these a long time ago and now you went back to them for this episode. I mean, how do they hold up and what was your overall impression of this run? Well, that was the, the number one question I had for myself going in. Is, is I've always held it as, as being the pinnacle of Superman storytelling in comics. And then I realized, you know, I've been thinking that for 35 years, and maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe, maybe it's just because at that point in my life and that age, I, you know, I've read Man of Steel many times over the years, but I've never really gone back to reread the actual series itself. So I, I did go in with a little bit of trepidation. Um, but was happy to find that I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think it holds up. I think it's beautiful. I think the art is fantastic. Uh, Burns' birthday was just the other day and posted a story um, on the site where I just happened to, you know, I was reading along and I think it was issue 16, the one with the prankster. And there's one page of Superman just flying through Metropolis thinking. It's really an ex, you know, really exposition catch-up kind of page. But the way Byrne lays it out, and each panel, six panels, is Superman from a different angle, from a different altitude, flying around Metropolis. So it really, it's, it's really craftsmanship, this idea that he's not only giving you what you need to know going into the story, but he's also giving you the feeling of what it would be like to be Superman flying around Metropolis, which I think he was superb at. And also gave me the idea of like, if you lived in Metropolis and looked up, this is what you would see. And it was just one page out of, you know, hundreds of pages, but it made me stop in my tracks. And I realized that, you know, that's the genius of Byrne. I know that that's a standard thing for comics artists to be able to do, but he did it with such skill and such creativity that, he, that I was really glad to be able to pick up on, on pieces like that. Um, on the whole, I thought it worked really well, particularly the first 10, 11 issues or, or, or so. I think it started to slide. Actually, it's, to go back, it didn't really slide, but what happened was because of the nature of what DC was doing at the time is that they would start stories in one book, finish them in another. And not, not just that, but there were also events. You know, they've, they've changed it up. They still do it, but not quite as much. So in the middle of reading a story, then you jump into Millennium, and then, or you jump into Legends, I think was one of them. Then you start a story here that ends over here. And right now I've been doing a Batman, uh, no, not for a few years now, a Batman detective read going back from 1964, and it's going to end in 1986. And I'm at 1982 right now. And now you have to read Batman and Detective in tandem because it's, they, they cross over all the time. So just reading the Superman portions of the, of the run here, was a little frustrating. Um, I, I, I had the urge to go and read the other issues, but since we were going to stay talking about this, I figured let's stay fresh. 
let's stay virgin. I'll just read what I'm supposed to read and, and we'll take it from there. But I thought that the storytelling was crisp. I thought the characterizations were crisp. I love his Clark Kent. I had forgotten about his Clark Kent, which actually has more, is more, and he said this at the time, is more like the George Reeves Clark Kent. He's not bumbling. He's not the unassuming guy. He's just, he's a regular guy. He, he, he's intelligent. He speaks his mind. He's fashionable. He's handsome. And it's that same, you know, I, I think what, I think we've talked about this before that Max Landis, I think in, in Superman, American alien, where, where the whole idea is that why doesn't anybody recognize Clark Kent as Superman? More likely is the idea that Clark Kent is just a guy who looks like Superman. You know, most people probably wouldn't realize that Superman even has a secret identity, let alone one to protect. So it's like, has anybody ever told you you look like Superman? Oh yeah, I get that all the time. You know, so, so in that, sense i really like the way that, that that clark kent was portrayed and also the way he kind of had this this love slash rivalry with lois i like the way that that was handled too right on well i'm glad that the run held up for you because that's you know yeah. that's kind of always the question for myself as well with some of the things that i'm going back to i mean for me most of this i was reading for the first time with some exceptions i had read superman number one uh, at at some point in in my in my past Superman journey, and then I I did read the three part finale, the Supergirl saga. I had read that uh, at another point, but you know ninety eight percent of what I read for this episode was for the first time. Uh, but for you, I know you know it wasn't. I'm glad that it held up. And I mean, I really I agree with everything you said. The art the art was really striking. You know, it's this will probably sound like you know sacrilege, but for me, you know, I'm more familiar with the burn who was at dc like in the mid to late 90s and i know of course he had these legendary runs at marvel on fantastic sure. four and x-men i am well aware of that but given that i got into comics in the 90s and i've always been more of a dc guy i never really went back to those runs and again the superman stuff i'm mostly coming to fresh now that he did um, but so i remember you know his wonder woman run for example um, that if I'm not mistaken, he penciled and inked. He inked himself on that, I believe. And I do think that makes a big difference because here, you know, he he did have inkers he was working with, primarily Carl, Carl Kiesel, yeah. right? And it, I really do think it, it makes a difference. And I, I really love the art here, uh, you know, uh, across the board. You Beautiful. Know, it's beautiful. And, you know, the, the page you mentioned, I saw the article that you put up at 13th Dimension. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a great piece. And I'm glad you called it out because it is. I mean, there's it's not you know, the most complicated page, but it no. really, it, it is so striking what he, what, it, what he was able to convey, you know, showing Superman flying from all of these different angles. Um, you mentioned too, you know, it's one page across hundreds, you know, that's the funny thing, right? Because his run, you know, you look at our right, 20, uh, 22 issues on the Superman title, but in addition to writing and drawing the Superman title, he was also writing and drawing action comics right. at the time. Um, Marv Wolfman wrote the first 12 issues of Adventures of Superman post-crisis, and then Byrne came on as co-plotter and scripter. Um, and of course, in addition to Man of Steel, he also did those other World of miniseries. So he was writing, and, and in num numerous cases, drawing a lot of Superman in, in, a, in a pretty tight period of time, when you think about it. It's quite a body of work within a couple of years. Yeah, I think it's, it's there's sort of a... I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's a, um, at the time, 
Byrne was saying, this is my recollection, so forgive me if the detail, you know, any of your listeners, the details are a little bit off, but I'm, I'm going by memory here, going back to the mid 80s, was that Byrne had said at the time that he wanted to do 100 issues of Superman. And that that's got people really excited, the idea that it would be this massive body of work on, on, on Superman. And since it was so good, you wanted it to last. So the idea that he left at 22 issues was like, what's going on here? Um, we now know some of the details of why he left, but it's true. It's not only that he did the the main series, he did all of this other stuff. It was He was remarkably prolific where Superman was concerned in a very short period of time. And I still, even now, remember back then, though, is that his Superman issues were my favorite issues of that entire period. Uh, that's no knock on Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway, who are all-timers. You know, I mean, these, these are tremendous talents. Um, but when, when Byrne was doing Byrne, it was, it was really... My, it was actually my favorite book that I was reading at the time. I was enjoying it more than Batman. I wasn't enjoying Teen Titans as much as I had been. I was strictly a DC guy at that point. Um, but yeah, for the for those twenty two issues, Superman was my favorite comic. Right on, uh, and you know, you mentioned too about the you know the tie ins and crossovers and things like that. And yeah, that you know that that did take me out of it a little bit as well at various points, specifically when we hit the DC events. I mean, issue number three is a Legends right. tie in, <laughs> right. and then there were two issues later on about Millennium, like you said, and then um, one or two others that you know lead directly into issues of Adventures of Superman. Um, that being said, I guess with those few exceptions, I, I really did feel like the run worked well on its own. Again, probably with the exception of those few, but for the most part, um, you know, I, I found that it worked well and I wasn't lost. And there were a couple of places where, you know, I relied on the editor's note. You know, Clark might re might sure. think about something and we get the editor's note that something happened in an issue of Action Comics. And I was like, okay, great. I'm good to go. Uh, yeah. So that, that worked fine for me. Uh, yeah, overall, I really liked it a lot. What I enjoyed the most... Really, number one was the characterization um, of, of Clark and Superman in particular. I felt that this was, uh, you know, a version of the character that was, you know, more modern, not, you know, not stuffy, but still classic. You know, it still felt like a classic presentation oh, yeah. of the character that remained true to the heroism. I liked that, you know, the the powers were scaled down and and the character and the stories were more grounded I loved the development of the supporting cast. And I, I think this, you know, kind of plays into, you know, where I started as a Superman fan with, with the death of Superman. And at that point, everyone was already, well <laughs> which, is, which is such a weird place to start. <laughs> I mean, I know you find that we've been through this, but it's like you started at the end and basically worked backwards. I mean, I know it didn't take, but it is still a funny way to, to get introduced to the characters when they kill them off. I believe me, that is not lost on me. Like for me, it began yeah. with an ending and it, it is, yeah. it's something that, you know, at the end of this, this is part one of a six episode run. We're starting with burn and we're going up to and including the death and return. And I'll talk about this more when we get there, but yeah, that's not lost on me. The fact that my introduction to the character was his death. And so what, you know, how does that inform the way I look at Superman? But also, you know, he was then missing from the books for a good chunk of the first year that I was reading. You know, what effect did that have? So, you know, we'll talk about that when we get there. 
But, but you know, the supporting cast, again, was well-established by that point. You know, certainly the core cast of the Daily Planet, but, but you know, additional characters as well, like Cat Grant, for example. Cat Grant, yeah. And yeah. also, you know, Maggie Sawyer and Dan Turpin with the SCU. I mean, you know, there was a lot that was established here that, uh, that, that I really liked, and I was a fan of, of those characters, and it was cool to see the beginnings of those dynamics. Yeah, I, I what I what I enjoyed was that that and I, one thing just very quick aside, Marv Wolfman deserves a lot of credit too because a lot of these ideas that were developed at this time also came from Wolfman. My understanding is that the idea of making Lex Luthor like you know a businessman and all of that, basically Metropolis's version of Donald Trump at the time, I think that that came from Wolfman. But the way Byrne grabbed it and the way Byrne crafted it, I think, was terrific. And I, it's still my favorite version of the character because I think it's the most, I hesitate to say realistic, but it's most interesting version. And, and the idea that, that, Lex's, um, uh, that Lex's motivations are, I think, more uh, realistic than any other version that we've seen. That said, going back to those characters, I think that what they did, whether we're talking about Wolfman or Byrne, is the way they melded the old with the new, that it was seamless. They did not stick out like a sore thumb. Cat um, Grant, you know, she comes off as, as pretty one-dimensional early on. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was really after Burn left is when they really started to fill out the character more. But like Maggie Sawyer. Maggie Sawyer is really interesting right away. And there's that whole episode where it's basically a Maggie Sawyer character study. And the story at the time, and again, it could be apocryphal. I don't know how much it was, but it was that story that started to, that either was or was around the beginning of the end for Byrne. Um, because this, I mean, again, I'd be happy to be corrected, but my my recollection at the time is that there was some internal concern about making um, making Maggie Sawyer queer, which was abundantly clear when you read the subtext of the story. They never say it, but it's really, really clear. And I think there was some internal back and forth over how they wanted to handle that because it was a very different time. And they didn't, you know, I guess corporate didn't want to go down that road or whatever. Um, but the, but the uh, you know, adding those characters, giving Metropolis a sense of place, I thought was really important. And a lot of that did have to do with the art especially when you see Superman flying upside down, which is something Byrne talked about at the time. That's something Christopher Reeve would do, because if you were Superman, wouldn't you also, wouldn't you like twirl around and fly if you could? Of course you would. You've got the greatest view in the world. So, I mean, when you're, you're just kind of absentmindedly flying around, you're not necessarily always George reeves it. You know, it's, it's, it, it lends its, it gives it personality, gives him personality, gives the city personality. And the way the characters react to him, I think, um, I think he made uh, Jimmy and Lois in particular, especially Lois, a deeper character. Um, again, she became even deeper after he left. I don't think that he got, really got to work with her long enough. But I think that his handling of that supporting cast, particularly the villains, uh, I, I think was very, very strong. Yes. Uh, well, it's funny with George Reeves is that if they had had the, uh, the budget and the technology and maybe we yeah, would have gotten a little more variety in the, the flying seeds, but no, yeah, no, I'm with you. I thought that was great. And you know, that Maggie Sawyer issue, um, that one stood out to me as well when we yeah. get her backstory. And I did make note of that in, in my head. I was like, you know, they never 
explicitly use the word gay, but you know, very right. clearly that's what's going on there. But I thought yeah. that was, and I, you know, I, I, I did stop myself. I was like, you know, this was the 80, you know, this was pretty, yeah. I think progressive for the 87, time. 87, probably about 87. Yeah. yeah. This was not something that was in mainstream comic books at the time. And it was of course terrifying to, you know, corporations. It's a, it's a whole different world now. But when you read it and you realize that the words are never said and yet it is abundantly clear, it's also credit to Byrne for the way he wrote the story that he was able to make it work and really give it that that pathos that that story needed. Um, and, 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 you know, because a lot of it dealt with the, the inequalities or the inequity of being gay in a mostly straight society. The, you know, the whole issue with her daughter and custody and all that kind of stuff that he got into was really kind of remarkable that he did. Right, because there's that panel where, uh, you know, Maggie's daughter has run away from home, right, and she needs Superman's help. And I liked that, too. I mean, I I thought that really helped make, it helped humanize Superman as well and make him relatable, that he was, there was a friendship there, right? It wasn't just this, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, arrangement. There was actually a friendship and he was willing to help. And, you know, we, we have that thought bubble as he's, you know, flying through the city looking for the daughter. And he's like, you know, it doesn't seem right to me that someone as upright as Maggie should lose access to her, her daughter just because she's, then he gets cut off before he gets it. Right. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Um, but yeah, but I thought that was cool. And, and yeah, to your point, it wasn't just that there was a gay character, but he was actually, Superman was offering some commentary on the situation. He was offering commentary, but it was also, you're right, because it, the, the issue was a character study of Maggie, but it was also in its own way, a character study of Superman, because it's giving you a sense, and without getting too political here, it gives you a sense of his compassion. It gets his, you his sense about his basic core thinking about what justice is. And the rest of it in his mind is noise. Here's a good person who does the right thing. Why should this person be treated differently? And that's that's the best of Superman, the best of Captain America. You know, those characters who stand for that sort of freedom and that sort of acceptance and inclusion are part of the reasons why both of those characters uh, remain among my favorites. Because I've, I've said before is that, you know, look, I, I, I'm not, you know, a, a multi-billionaire uh, uh, five times over with every gadget in the world. But from a personality standpoint, characters like Batman or Spider-Man are who we are. You know, we, you know, dealing with trauma, dealing with things that, you know, not always in the best way. Um, you know, may, we may be successful, but there are a lot of, you know, a lot of broken eggs along the way. With Superman, Superman's who we want to be. Superman is the one that we want to see. We want him to stand for something. Now that doesn't mean that he always wins, or that he that it's easy on him. But he's the he's the aspirational character, and I thought that that was something that Byrne really brought to the fore. Yeah, well, well said. Um, you know, continuing along this thread of you know the way Clark and Superman are portrayed, the the, the general characterization. I loved that. You know, there was some some room and thought for romance. You know, you didn't get a ton of that pre-crisis, but here, you know, one of the issues opens where Clark is having, you know, an amorous dream about Wonder Woman. And it's like, you know, it was, I'm like, oh my God, like, this is great. (laughs) Well, think about it. Think think if you are, I mean, it it only made sense. Remember, he was not dating Lois yet. Right. He was definitely interested and they were interested in each other. And that develops as the series develops too. And we all know that that's where it's headed because it's Superman and, you know. The not the not the new fifty two notwithstanding, everybody knows that he belongs with 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 Lois Lane. But if you're Superman and you encounter Wonder Woman and you're a free agent, 
Of course you'd be interested. How could you not be? You'd be you'd probably be as obsessed as he was for those several issues trying to say, how do I meet her without looking like a fool? <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was great because that's also a thing. I mean, there's this, 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 this goddess princess being from this mystical land and the kid from Kansas. And, you know, no matter how good looking he is and no matter the fact that he's Superman, he's still like, do I measure up? And that I thought was was such a great way of presenting that. Plus the fact that he enjoys flirting with Kat and, and flirting with Lois. He likes getting women's attention. He's a snappy dresser. You know, he's he you know, he, he keeps himself. He, you know, he's 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 a catch. But he's a catch as Clark Kent. And I think that that is something that I really, really enjoy because it makes it more interesting to read about Clark. It's not, you, you feel like you are reading the same character, but it's not like, oh, he's not necessarily, uh, we'll just kind of get through this part of it. No, when he's Clark, he's interesting too. And I think that that's a, that's a rare trick for, for a writer to be able to pull off. A hun- yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, Clark now is no longer just a means to an end. It's not just, a, right. you know, the identity is not just a disguise. And I mean, to the point where numerous times throughout this run, you know, the character explicitly thinks to himself, like, Clark is who I am. I have to get back to my true identity as Clark Kent. Right. Uh, you know, there are numerous instances of that. And um, yeah, I mean, it definitely makes all those daily planet scenes in particular, like they pop a lot more because now you're, you're more yeah. invested because you're following yes. Clark's story, you know, as, as well as Superman's and yeah, the, the dream about wonder woman, the, you know, trying to get in touch with uh, like her PR person and bought like that was great. I, I love that. And he's, and he's sitting there like, should I do this? Is this too weird? You know? And it's, it's, he's not being too angry. He's not being like Peter Parker about it. He's being, you know, this is just a straight thing that anybody would be like, I don't know. I, I, how do I go about this without looking like an idiot? And I, and I just, I, I, again, humanizing this character and, 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 it, and part of the reason why the burn stuff has always held this place in my heart. And I am glad that it stood up is that the big, what, you know, you know, is better than anybody. What's the biggest criticism of Superman? You can't relate to him. Oh, he does can do it. No, it's all in the writing. It's all in the presentation and John Burns, Superman, was an eminently relatable person. He had depth, he had multi-dimensions, whether he was Clark or whether he was Superman. And that's really what I appreciated about it. I mean, this is, to me, this is still, and I've read other Superman since, I think Jeff Johns did a great job. I think some other writers have done a great job over the years. Um, but still, I think Burn is the best. No, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, so yeah, I mean, the, the depiction of Clark definitely, uh, you know, I, I, was a, I was a fan and, uh, you mentioned Cat Grant as well. You know, there's the there's the the issue where uh, you know Lois shows up at Clark's apartment at the end of the day, and you know Cat's cooking him dinner, and Clark's in the shower, and you know, and right. it's, it was you know it's great because you know right he's not Peter Parker. You don't typically associate that soap opera element as such a big part of right. Superman, but there's you know there's a little bit of room for it before, like you said, we are going to get to Lois and Clark, of course, but you know along the way there you know there could there could be a little bit of that. Well, I, I actually think that the best comics are soap operas. Um, I, I, I am not a fan of, I mean, I know that there was like, yeah, there, there has been debate, you know, does, does Batman need Bruce Wayne? Not again, not to get off and talk about Batman, which of course is, you know, my impulse, you know, does, does he need Bruce Wayne? Can he just be Batman all the time or what? No, no, to me, that's boring. He, he, you know, him just going out and beating people up is boring. If you don't get that fully rounded 
saw, you know, this is what he's like when he's Bruce Wayne. And I don't mean the version of Bruce Wayne where Bruce Wayne is as broken as Batman. I really prefer that Bronze Age, you know, Bruce Wayne is a personality. His parts of the storyline are as interesting, not as interesting as Batman's, because, uh, but you understand my point. Yeah. But they're interesting too. They're not boring. It's not filler. It moves along. You get romance. You get different characters popping in and out. And Byrne used that model here with Superman. Now, of course, Byrne came from Marvel, and that whole idea was really a Marvel, um, you know, a part of the Marvel Revolution, the idea of giving these characters personal lives. DC resisted until the 70s, and then it really, you know, took off from there. So by the time Byrne came around in the 80s, basically, it was a Marvel version of Superman. And I mean that in the best possible way. I don't mean that as any kind of dig at either, either company. Gotcha. Uh, I, I want to just pivot just slightly. Sure. Uh, you know, one of one of the things that was so enjoyable and interesting about this reading project, especially given where I started as a Superman reader and the reading that I've done recently, uh, exploring the golden, silver, and bronze ages of the character, it was cool to see, um, you know, where Byrne took inspiration from what came before, and it was cool to see where Byrne set things up that later writers would use. And I have an example of each that I'll, I'll share briefly. So as far as, uh, again, you know, you mentioned the villains before, and we do get reintroductions of, uh, in the in the, these issues in particular, uh, you know, Metallo and Mixius Pitalik and Prankster and Toyman. Um, but we also get the story of uh, the mermaid, Laurie Lamaris, who... Uh, it's one of the best issues in the entire run. It, it's great, and it... it Stick. It's very faithful to the original introduction of Lori. I think her her uh, curfew might have changed. I have to go back and double check the original issue. I feel like I feel like in the original one she had to get home by eight o'clock, and now it was eleven. So it's you know the times have changed. She could stay out later. <laughs> it's not the fifties anymore. No. Or it's not nineteen sixty two anymore. Uh, but so you know, it was, when all, only yeah. fast mermaids used to stay out till eleven o'clock. Right. So that's that, that's that's the part that changed by the eighties. <laughs> Uh, you know, but so like, it was cool to see stuff like that. And then the, the flip of it, uh, you know, again, we see all of these characters introduced who would continue to have a role in the books moving forward. But there was one thing in particular, um, it, it, you know, there's that, there's that, uh, story or just, well, it's a, like a backup story basically in the Joker issue where Lex goes to this diner and he makes the offer to the waitress, Jenny Hubbard. And it's, and we'll talk more about Lex, but I mean, it really points to just how st- sadistic he is and these mind games that he plays with people. But Jenny Hubbard, yeah, but Jenny Hubbard came back in the Jeff Loeb run during the President Lex storyline. When Lex is on the campaign trail, Jenny Hubbard shoots him. Oh, see, I, you know, I never read any of that. I didn't know that. See, but, you know, I don't like that. Oh. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I can now, okay, I haven't read it, so maybe it's fantastic. I don't know. But I like the idea of the mystery. The in, I like Burns' intent is that we don't see the impact, but we it is all stated by Lex, and you believe every word of it. And and I thought that it was such a great way of showing just how cruel Lex is. And I, I really think they should have left well enough alone. I, I didn't even know that that had happened, but. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that's, I mean, that's become like a famous Lex Luthor story. But to me, it's also probably the best Lex Luthor sequence of the entire Burn run. It's just that whole, because he, he just picked someone out of ran, you know, random, just I'm going to go toy with this person and ruin their life. It just shows you what a horrible person he is. And I think it's you know, exceptionally well done. 
Yeah, I mean, he offers her all this money, right, to come stay with him for for how long? Yeah, an indecent proposal. In de- right. Um, and while she's debating, he leaves. And it's just like twisting yeah. that knife of like, she'll, you know, uh, right. never really know. Uh, but, you know, kind of on the note of Lex, you know, there's so much to talk about. But you know what really struck me? The issue two, when he kidnaps Lana and right. tortures her. And, you know, when Clark yeah. finds her in the closet of his of his apartment building, she is in such rough shape. I was really, I was surprised at how... At how far it 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 went. The one thing I will say in the, in the during the whole Rudy dude is that Lana got a raw deal, man. She she did not deserve. She she became, and I'm not entirely sure what the, what the purpose was, other than to show that it's not always peaches and cream to be in Superman's orbit. And the, the, I always felt it was forced. The idea that you know he revealed himself to her and then took off. I could see where it would break her heart. But I could also see where she would be able to move on if she understood that this guy's got a mission in life. And unfortunately, it involves being part of the world and not part of Smallville. And and I I don't think I'm expecting too much from a character who's always been shown to have such grace as Lana Lang or, or such um, compassion as Lana Lang to think that she would have reacted the way she did. Because I thought it was – they make her out to be kind of selfish and a little um, – I don't know, damaged by it. And I, I never, that never rang true with me. And I was surprised by what you're saying because as we kept reading, it's like, Jesus Christ, Burns just, he's just keeps twisting the knife on Lana Lang. It's like, why? And um, only later in the run does he kind of ease up on the throttle with that. Yeah. And, you know, while we're talking about Lana, and, you know, this came up when uh, we talked about the World of Smallville miniseries in a prior episode. But it plays out here as well, you know, where we find out that uh, Lana and all the children of Smallville were these agents of Manhunters. I did not like that in the least. I just felt like that was a layer we did not need. You know, I feel like there's something about Smallville that needs to remain kind of (laughs) separate and pure, I guess. And I just felt that was too far for me. Well, part of it is, and this is where I, I, I don't have... A, I don't have all the information about how much was Byrne mandated to do. Because remember, the, the Manhunters, mm-hmm. as we know, were the big part of uh, Millennium. You know, that was so whether that was set up, whether he, you know, it, it, I really don't know. The one thing um, I don't like whenever they do that anyway, where they, where they do that kind of weird retconning. I really prefer, like you say, Smallville should just be what it was. In the same way, and we haven't mentioned this yet, is that I love the idea of his parents still being alive. Mm-hmm. And he was great. I, I mean, I know that the that people say that it humanizes him whenever Jonathan Kent dies because it shows that, like it was in the movie, I've got all these powers and I can't save him, and it does show you his limitations. And, but I think there are so many different ways, particularly the way Byrne writes the character, to humanize him. That I love the idea that he actually is a superhero with parents because there aren't that many of those. They all they all seem to be either orphans or they've lost one parent, and now it's like I feel like every superhero somehow has been retconned to have their origin include trauma. And the idea that Superman does not come from trauma, the idea that Superman does what he does because it's the right thing to do, because it's the way he was raised, to me is far more preferable and far more inspirational than just a revenge story. I know, which is weird coming from a Batman fan, I know, but that's also why I like Superman because he is the other side of that. 
Yeah, no, that's the thing. I think that makes perfect sense coming from a Batman fan, right? It's like you you don't you probably don't want or need every character to be to be like Batman yeah, to like I mean, have that same motivation. Today, I mean, uh, Green Lantern has lost people. Flash has lost people. And I and I and I get that there are people who respond to all of that. You know, Peter Parker famously that goes way before, of course. But the idea that that there can be a well-adjusted superhero who just does good work for no other motivation other than it's 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 proper i love that and 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 i and i will always cling to that because to me what i always appealed to me about batman was i mean there's always the fun flashy the gadgets and the villains and all of that but the thing about batman for me is about his willpower his ability of course he's got resources but it's also the way he devotes himself to his mission and will see his mission through at all costs. Now, the way he's written in the modern ways, it's all costs, regardless of his personal relationships. I prefer the more Bronze Age approach, where he at least had those kind of limitations. And he also was, compared to today, where he's kind of a bat god. Back then, he was a person. I mean, a regular thug could sometimes get the jump on. Going back to Superman, to me, and, I, and of course, it's now it's overstated, but it is about that hopefulness and that, that, that sense of, admiration i mean it's 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 he is the american dream and i know that that's a fraught term these days but he is what we are supposed to want that kind of brotherhood caring for our fellow man doing right things because this is the way we should be living our lives and so that difference between the two characters is, is what i really appreciate about about both in fact i would say that one of the things i didn't like about the reboot is i didn't like the way they handled superman and batman at all uh, I, I don't like the idea of them having to be and en- having to be enemies i don't like the idea of I, I also think that batman was introduced poorly in in man of steel with magpie magpie it was really bad. It was very short-sighted, um, but I digress. <laughs> no, but your you know your 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 point is well taken, and yeah, I mean that's the thing as a Superman fan that uh, that I've always loved the, this idea that you know he has all of this power, he could use it any way he wants, and he chooses yeah. to use it the way he does because of these right. values that were instilled in him that he's not right. driven by guilt or revenge, and you know. Yeah. I, I won't go on to too much of a tangent here, but to your point, you, know, you mentioned that a number of heroes, you know, some of them historically have always had that loss baked into their origin story. That's one thing. But you did mention retcons and it's like, yeah, and not to point a finger here, but, you know, you look at Jeff Johns, it's like anytime he gets his hands on one of these characters, you know, Green Lantern rebirth, we have his father die. Flash rebirth, his mother dies. He takes over Superman and it's not a retcon, but he kills off Pa Ken. It's like, it's like a compulsion with this guy. <laughs> I'm- I know. I, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's just, and, and, and there are other writers who have done the same, but like, you're right. Like Spider-Man, it's part of his thing. Batman, it's part of his thing from the jump. Robin too, for that matter. Um, although Robin, of course, was always written differently. And, you know, the, the, the faux psychologists among us have always said that the reason Robin doesn't have Batman's thirst for vengeance is that Robin got to have closure at a young age as opposed to Batman, which actually makes a lot of sense. But, um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's I, I that that overly grim aspect of of superheroes is what has turned me off to a lot of modern comics. And I and again, I don't want to sound like the old man says you kids get off my lawn, but I really I really now focus on 
the Bronze Age in particular, because I really think that that was the sweet spot for someone like me, where you have adult themes, and yet there's a sense of hopefulness and a sense, and this even for characters like Batman, there's a sense of hopefulness, a sense of heroism, a sense of compassion um, that drives these characters that you don't see as much of uh, uh, anymore. And when and when DC tried to make Superman badass and cranky, it was just like a really bad idea. Yeah, no, I, but I digress again. It, no, it's all good. Wait, I have an, I have one. I have I have another tangent, but it, it it does build off of the. Yeah. It's it's very specific to the burn run, but it's timely. So, uh, you know, we have. Well, by the time this comes out, the movie will be out. Uh, the Suicide Squad, the new James Gunn version of the Suicide Squad. Yes. And there was this little bit. Which I'm looking forward to. Yes. And yeah. as am I. But in the trailer, we have Bloodsport uh, talking about how he put Superman in the ICU. And on Twitter, I think there were people like, how could he put Superman in the ICU? And James Gunn brought receipts and he posted panels from one of these issues. It happens yeah. in issue four here where uh, yeah. he, he shoots Superman with like a kryptonite bullet and he puts him in the hospital. Right. So that was cool to say. That was very timely. I was like, oh, we were just reading about this. Yeah, no, that is that is really funny. The, I, I, and the Bloodsport thing is also, you know, because I think he was the first, in Superman itself anyway, he was the first new villain, I think, that appeared. Because issue one was, was a Metallo. Issue two was a crossover. Or issue three was a crossover. Issue two... Was Lex kidnapping been, Lana. Was, was Lex... Right. The issue three was a crossover. Issue four, I think, was Bloodsport. So that yep. was the first, you know, and and that even Bloodsport was Bloodsport was an interesting character too because he's presented one way and then you find out he's something else entirely by the end. Yes, well, you know, it's funny. So going through these issues, I did find I responded more, I guess, to the to the stories that featured the more the more classic villains. When we when we deviated a little bit, I found myself a little bit less engaged. Like. Um, like Skyhook in the uh, in the Ma- I like right. the Maggie Sawyer aspect of it. Right. Skyhook not as much. Dreadnought in in one of the later ones that was an issue yeah. that that crossed over with Adventures of Superman and you know Superman's powers were being quote unquote stolen. You know those again. I still enjoy the art. I still enjoy the characterization. Um, but I, oh, there was that two part archaeological story with those aliens who um, you know were were inhabiting humans. Those those yeah. issues fell a little flat for me. Well, the only of, of the villains that were introduced in that period that have stayed with me, is, the only one really has a silver banshee, um, who I like. I like the look. I think she's a great looking villain and she's just weird and different. I mean, she's just strange and I like that. But yeah, the, the other villains in the classic villains, those issues do come out um, more entertaining. And, and what I found also that surprised me in rereading these is that just like Lori Lamaris, they don't really go too far, or he didn't go too far in reinventing these characters. He modernized them, but really it was not all that radical. I mean, it was radical for the time because the idea of doing anything with Superman, I mean, I mean, let's dial it back quickly. I mean, this was not the first time a superhero had been rebooted. The whole Silver Age in DC the launch of the Silver Age was all rebooted characters, a new Flash, a new Green Lantern, a new Hawkman, a new Adam, X, Y, and Z. Um, and then, of course, Marvel came along and, and what have you. But with with nobody of Superman's level had this really happened to, you know, a hard reboot like this. So people were outraged. People to this day are still outraged. But the thing that, that, that grabbed me, particularly in the stories with villains like Toy Man 
and the prankster was how much they really resonated with that original concept and how much he was able to play with them. And he really was not disrespectful to what had come before. He used a lot of the ideas. He just put a modern spin. He just gave them, he also gave them a reason that they would be threats to Superman. Because when you talk about like the Toy Man and Prankster in particular, it's always like, why would the, I mean, Mr. I always call it Mixie Ziplick because that's how I pronounced it as a kid. I get him. You know, he's this magical thing imp from the fifth dimension and he's got magic so he could drive Superman crazy. I don't love the character, but I get why he would drive Superman up a wall. The others, it's like, Toy Man? Really? Prankster? Really? How could they be threats to Superman? How could they get in his way? And I thought that the way Byrne handled both, um, I thought were uh, was really great, but also not all that far from where they had been before. So while if I were reading this again in 1986 or 87, I might think of it one way. 35 years later, I'm looking at it thinking, really, this isn't all that radical. It's just really good. Yeah, it just it felt fresh, but right, not rad, yeah. not a radical departure. Right. Um, yeah. I've always been fine with toy man i've always felt prankster to be a bit redundant i feel like we don't really need yeah. both of them and uh, uh this is a confession i've never liked silver banshee and i can't tell you really? why i can't tell you why and they did her on smallville too you would think yeah. if anything would get me it'd be i didn't like her that i don't i don't know what i can't i don't know what it is but i've never liked the character anytime she pops I, up i'm I, like oh god you know for me half of it is the way she looks yeah. it's such a great design you know, it's just, I, I, I remember the first time I saw her, I was like, who the hell is this? And I just saw, I, I, that she's always stayed with me. Bloodsport never really resonated with me. Um, but, but I am curious to see what they're going to do with him with this in the in the Suicide Squad, um, which the reason I'm looking forward to is, fr frankly, because of James Gunn. You know, and, and the, you know, the, the cast looks great. And it looks like it's going to be a lot more fun as opposed to the first one, which is less sad. Less for you. Move on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, just jumping back to uh, uh, to Lex for a moment. Yeah, I so love this depiction of the character. And you got to keep in mind, right, when I, and I know I keep going back to my starting point, but, you know, that's kind of, with this run of episodes in particular, that's really where I'm starting, like I'm working my way backwards. So when I started, the version of Lex I was introduced to in the comics was Lex Luthor II, right? Lex had transplanted his brain into his cloned right. body and was posing as his own son. Right. That was the Lex I met, right? And in more recent years, we've we've gotten more of a blend of pre and post crisis. We've gotten the he's the still the businessman industrialist, but he's also this great scientific mind. Like we've right. gotten which makes sense. It makes sense sure. and it works. I, I do yeah, like absolutely. that to be to be honest. I, I probably Elon Musk. Right. It, yeah, exactly. So we've, I mean, I'm not saying he's Lex Luthor. I'm just saying a, a scientific <laughs> genius can also be a great businessman. The two can go together. Exactly. But what I, yeah, I, you know, in, and um, I mean, Elon Musk, I think, is probably more, more Tony Stark than anything. But uh, um, but the, the that was the thing I liked about Lex. And a lot of people didn't like it. He's no longer a scientist. He relies on his staff. Frankly, it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, so long as he's still portrayed as that elusive, one step ahead of Superman kind of character. Much in the way he was in the Justice League cartoons, I thought was this, that was I mean, clearly based on the Burns Superman, but they also did make him a scientific genius. So I think you can have both, but so long as he's in that role of, of you know, 
corporate overlord who is has enough resources and enough intelligence to be able to stay out of you know to to drive superman crazy can't defeat him but then he could also elude him at the same time as opposed to him being dropped off in prison at the end of every story yeah i mean that's the thing that's so that's so compelling about it is that you know plenty of villains can engage superman on a on a physical literal battlefield right but with lex it is different it is this game of chess and for someone as powerful as superman to be rendered powerless by not being able to bring him to justice it is really it is really effective now it's compelling i I wanted to ask and i guess i probably know the answer because i know you you know you this was really what made you a fan of the character so you probably don't have this attachment to the pre-crisis version so i probably know the answer but is there any part of you that misses the um the pre-Superman relationship between, uh, or like the Smallville history between Clark and Lex, or Superboy and Le- like that, that whole aspect of it. Well, no, and and I it, to me it's a testament of the TV show Smallville that despite the fact that I've never ever ever liked the idea that Lex ever spent a minute in Smallville, what I what I liked about the show is that the show made it work for what the show was. Um, it didn't, they didn't give it the right, I think the problem that they had with it was how to resolve all of that. And then there were issues with clones and all that, you know, whatever. My biggest issue with, with, um, with Lex being in Smallville is that if he's one of the two or three smartest people in the world and he comes to Metropolis and this guy he knew back then who was Superboy and there was also a place where Clark Kent lived down the street. And now I'm in Metropolis and there's Superman and that guy Clark Kent is a big pain in the ass at the Daily Planet. How do you not make that connection? And I know that people have said, well, he's too arrogant or that you know, you know, know, Lex wouldn't remember or he blanked it out or whatever. To me, anything else is just an excuse. And so the idea that Lex, Superman didn't meet Lex until um, Metropolis, I think, only makes sense. I think anything else, it may be fun, it may be entertaining, but it, it really doesn't make storytelling sense. With with Superman, the idea, like in the movie, Superman the movie, the idea that Lex Luthor is this shadowy villain who Superman encounters for the first time uh, in Metropolis, it was, you know, at the time I knew I, it felt radical, but to me now it seems completely normal and, and appropriate. Right. Yeah, no, that is a great point. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm somewhat torn because again, as a Smallville fan, like I love that idea, but on Smallville, he wasn't Superboy. I think that's, I think that's part of the problem when you go back to so many of those pre-crisis stories, exactly to your point. It's like, this is the idea of Superboy in and of itself is like really pushing it as far as believability. And then you add the Lex aspect to it. And, you know, further to your point on the television show Smallville, they didn't know how to wrap it up. And we ended up no. with a very inelegant mind wipe at the end of the series. Yeah. Now I've maintained, and I've said this on other episodes and Mark Wade himself disagreed with me, but I still maintain, I think there is, there's a version of a story you could tell, I think where, where Lex knows Clark's secret. They might have this backstory and he knows the secret, but maybe there's still that those remnants of friendship and that keeps him from outing him or he just likes that he has. I know. All right. Another another disagreeing. But I, I think there's I still maintain I think there's some way to tell this story where it could work. I'm not saying it's the way it has to be or my and even necessarily my preferred version. But I do think there's some there's some way where it could work. Yeah. I, to me, it just I mean, I understand the the the, the allure of it. 
Um, I understand why that kind of thing is appealing. It's a fun, it's a fun idea, but to me, it's more of a, it's better as a what if idea as opposed to having it be canonical. Not that canon really means anything anymore, really that it should. I just like that the feel of them meeting as adults to me just makes more sense. But I still think that you can enjoy your Superboy stories and enjoy them for what they are. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, that you have to like reject them because you just don't believe in that particular concept. Fair enough. You know, as far as uh, other differences from pre-crisis Superman, like different uh, new ideas that were introduced here, you know, previously we had Superman's costume made out of the, the you know, the blankets that he came to Earth in. So they were, they were strong. Here, you know, Ma just makes him a costume. We don't, we don't have that, that aspect of it. Uh, so we have this idea, and I believe it was, was new to this run, of this aura right around yeah. Superman's body that, that protects the costume. So that was interesting. And that was, I think a good, a good way to reconcile, well, okay, how can we have a human, you know, an earth made costume that is still not getting torn to shreds every issue? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a push, but I, I never had a problem with it because I think, I think that the, the allowance was that it allowed him to have, it allowed him to have a torn cape. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that was the one thing that the cape was flapping so the cape could get torn. But everything else was skin tight, so he was able to protect it with whatever. The other thing that that, that they uh, and I believe that this was also introduced in Burn was his infrared vision, where he's able to follow someone's hate signature and track them down long after they've left somewhere. And I thought that's a really neat idea, but under the wrong hands, that could be abused as a writer's a, a lazy writer you know, would, would overdo that with, with the way it was done here. I thought, okay, well, I, I, that, that's okay. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny too, right? Because I know one of the objectives with, with the reboot post-crisis was to scale down the power. So it's like, yeah, to introduce something a little bit different that, like you said, does have that potential to be used as a crutch is, is right. kind of interesting, which I guess maybe is a springboard to like the last big topic that I wanted to hit on here. And it, you know, it plays out specifically in the, the three-part finale, the Supergirl saga. Yeah. So it's issues uh, 21 and 22 of Superman and also uh, an issue of Adventures of Superman as well. There's a little crossover there. Um, and this deals with the pocket universe and um, the that we ultimately out of this story will get uh, the the 90s version of Supergirl. And this, of course, famously is the storyline where uh, Superman executes Zod and the other uh, Kryptonian criminals. Yeah. Now, and there's a lot that we can talk about, and I'm happy to go wherever you'd like with this. But I guess the the big picture question that I wanted to raise was, you know, Burn established, right, that, that Superman is the sole survivor of, of Krypton. And so that really scaled back what we had pre-crisis with all these yes. other Kryptonians and Kandor. And, you know, he was time traveling to Krypton and hanging out there. You know, there, there was all of that. So we really scaled back on that. Yet, within the first couple of years of this run, we have, uh, you know, like alternate versions of these Kryptonian characters introduced. And I, I don't know, I guess it's a little baffling to me because it just feels like that undermines the intent and it's like you end up with these lesser versions of the characters that you're familiar with. so it's like i guess i it was a little tough to kind of wrap my head around that i was curious well, what your i take think was. i think that's what ultimately led burn to leave the book oh and to leave the whole thing from what i understand he said that he was he was and, and i've read this where he says and this is his version of, of the story as i understand it is that um he was made promises DC said, go to it. And then DC got very nervous very early on that if he was, that for what they were doing at the time, what might seem kind of mild now was too radical. 
Fans were screaming about it. There was a lot of concern. You know, how can you get rid of Candor? How can you get rid of Supergirl? There was a lot of anger. To this day, there are still people who are angry about this reboot. Um, and the sense is that, at least the way he has said it or has been quoted, is that that DC chickened out. And he had a vision for where he wanted to take the character, what he wanted to do. So when you do read these stories and as you're going farther along, it does feel forced. The whole Supergirl notion feels forced. The pocket universe feels like they are bending over backwards to find a way to make the Legion exist so they could still publish the Legion. I get that. I still think there's a better way to do it than they did. They bring back a version of Superboy. They, all of those things, I thought at the time, detracted from it. I never really liked their version of Supergirl or how they, you know, I've, again, I like the idea of him being, you know, it, it may not be the right term now to say the last son of Krypton, but the last survivor of Krypton, um, I think completely works. The one part that I would say about that, though, is that I wouldn't have had a problem if the Kryptonian supervillains had shown up. Because they were these, these were, as Superman 2 showed, these have these villains have great storytelling potential, General Zod in particular, great storytelling potential. And the idea that Superman could still encounter Kryptonians, the Phantom Zone, I think, would allow for that. The rest of it, I, didn't, I did not think is necessary. Now, as far as the execution, I have been very vocal over the years about the movie The Man of Steel, which I, you know, had its moments and thought that there were some, you know, definitely interesting elements to it. But on the whole, I'm not a fan. And the big one for me was that I, 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 I felt, I think I got, I think I audibly gasped when, spoiler alert, Superman kills Zod at the end. Now, I remember at the time people saying, yeah, but he's killed Zod before. He did it in the comics. Why are you everybody getting all exercised? Well, the context of the stories are completely different. Um, with In The Man of Steel, the movie, Superman clearly has another option. Zod will not be stopped, but Superman doesn't have to snap his neck right there. He could fly out of there, take him somewhere. There's, there's Superman would find a way in that circumstance. Here... He states very clearly, what am I to do? I can't send them back to the Phantom Zone. He, they've destroyed this universe. If I if they follow me, they're going to destroy mine. This has to stop. And as the only representative of law and order in this dimension, I guess it falls on me to do this. And you could argue, and I, and I certainly am not comfortable with it, I certainly wish that they had done something else, but I don't think it's—I don't think it's as bad as what they did in *The Man of Steel*. I don't think that it ruined the character. I don't think that it—that it was um, a bad storytelling choice. I just wish it hadn't happened. If that makes sense, I don't mean to contradict myself. It's like it's not, it's not something I like, but I can live with it in the context in which Byrne presented it, which I thought was. A realistic way in that in that environment because in you because in that sense you do have to ask yourself if that were me is that what i would do and the answer is yes i don't believe in capital punishment i don't believe you know but if i but if I, if i'm in a multiverse and i know that this is the only way to eliminate a threat to life everlasting you might have to take that radical that radical move and 
it's the same thing as like the difference between murder and going to war. You know, I've thought that in, in The Man of Steel, Superman straight up murdered Zod. I didn't think that he did not have to do it. They had shown that there were other ways to, 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 do, to, to, to fix this. Here, this was like basically wartime. You know, it's, it's like he, he was faced with Hitler and, and Himmler and Eichmann with superpowers. What do I do? Well, you got to do what you would have done with Hitler, Eichmann, and, you know, and the rest. So, I respectfully, I disagree as far as Man of Steel. <laughs> I'm sure some of your listeners will, too. I mean, I remember when you mentioned Mark Boyd before, and he, we once had this thing where he said that Superman does not kill full stop. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I buy that. But here was a case that I thought that Byrne made a compelling reason to have it happen. So, you know, as far as Man of Steel, I've talked about this on, on numerous episodes, including one very recently where we talked about the, the morality and the ethical duty of Superman. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to I don't want to rehash the entire thing. I guess the way yeah. I saw it and I, I'll be perfectly honest. And I said this in other episodes, the first time I saw that that ending scene in Man of Steel, I, it didn't really sit right with me. And it took it oh, took it some really time and it, and it took some subsequent viewings. But I, I have come around on it. And I guess I look at it as. Uh, you know, it was it was the heat of the moment versus the more coldly calculated execution. I also look at it like I get what you're saying as far as oh, we could have flown him up. And I know that's an argument that's been made. I guess I look at it as like I feel that they showed us that Zod was not going to stop. It's like even if Clark had flown him up, Zod would have come back down like th this. He had made his choice and he was going to keep at it until Superman put him down. So I, you know. You definitely could argue that it was also a wartime killing as opposed to a murder. And, and again, we don't need to, you know, adjudicate it here in this court of <laughs> Superman. Um, but I just felt that when I watched the movie, and, and as I watched Man of Steel, I had kind of really up and down feelings as I watched it. Parts I really enjoyed and parts I really didn't. Um, but the end ruined it for me. I, to me, it just was like, no. Superman would have found a way. This just, he had been, he had, and I guess the difference between the two scenes is that in the movie, we've seen Superman faced with that sort of dilemma before. The way Byrne did it was very, very, very specific. It wasn't just in the heat of battle with another powerful Kryptonian. It was, I have to do this because it was the only way to save a universe. I don't do it lightly. It is calculated in the sense that he had to think about it. He had to consider his options. Maybe it should have been written a little bit more deeply because it does come off sort of as, I'm not glib, but it, it, it's not maybe as developed as well as it could have been. And again, while I don't particularly care for it, I think that at least it makes, he makes a, he makes a cogent case for why Superman would do that. And I, and I think that that's fair. Because I think even Superman pushed to the brink like that, knowing that he had no other choice, I think that he would have made that decision. You know, I prefer to have been an academic to the question, but still. Yeah, I mean, again, I think we'll we'll agree to disagree on Man of Steel, but honestly, as far as the the execution in, in the Supergirl saga, I I really didn't object to it. It did make sense to me. Um, I guess I'm okay with him killing Sod in, in either case. <laughs> but you know what? You know what? Uh, you know what really got me about the Supergirl saga when, uh, you know, Lex, the, the good version of Lex in the pocket universe, directs Superman to gold kryptonite. 
right? Which is what, you know, Superman uses to strip Zod and, and the criminals of their powers before he uses the green right. kryptonite on them. And Superman says to Lex, he's like, if you had gold kryptonite, why didn't you use this on them earlier? And Lex was like, oh, you know, my ego, I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. It's like five billion people are dead. You got to get over yourself, yeah, buddy. It's, I mean, this is, <laughs> but the whole thing, I think, um, whether this was Byrne driving the story or whether it was something that he was handed or whether there's a combination of all of the above, I don't know. But I will say this, is that I don't think any of it needed to happen. I don't think we needed to have any uh, um, any pocket universe. I don't think we needed to have another Supergirl. I don't think we needed to have any of this stuff. And it did feel that it was very, very quickly after um, – this new idea was introduced. And I remember at the time thinking this, you know, I, you know, when I read it this time, it was in a matter of like three or four nights back in the day, I read it as it came out. So we're talking over a period of years, but when they introduced Superboy, I'm like, really, really, even if it's a pocket, really, they can't just leave well enough alone. You know, the idea of you know, bringing in a Supergirl who's not Supergirl because they needed to have a Supergirl. And this isn't anything against Supergirl. It's just the concept of what they were going for, I thought, had a lot more merit. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I felt a lot of things in that particular, in, in those three issues, felt a little forced, didn't feel quite organic, whereas the earlier parts of the run really did feel like this was, he had this freedom that he was, part of the pun he was you know spreading his wings i thought um but later as they were really kind of diving into some of this more arcane stuff i think that's when the when the, when the series lost a little bit of something and what's unfortunate and i i will always wonder is what did burn want to do instead what would he have done instead if he had been given a free because any of the time that it looked like he had free reign, I was wildly entertained. I thought, I was like, yeah, he's, he's, this is what I want to read. When it felt like there was some interference, but that's often the case when you're dealing, and that's not a knock on editors. I, you know, I'm an editor. <laughs> I love editors. Some of my favorite, some of, you know, I, I, you know, I, editor, everybody needs an editor. But there is sometimes where you feel like there's an interference, and and uh, um, I, I felt like at the end that that's what was happening. And from what I understand, that is what was happening. Yeah, I mean that definitely tracks. And yeah, I mean, and that's why I brought this up because I think that was it was a little baffling to me. And again, I had read this that particular three part story before, and I and I was very familiar with the protoplasm version of Supergirl, who was with us for right. a long time. And you know, Peter David went on to do really interesting things with her. He made her an Earthborn angel in her own series. I mean, a very wild departure from what you would typically think of as far as Supergirl stories. But I know that series has its fans, and we'll be covering it on the podcast mm -hmm. down the line. And I'm excited to. I read a little bit of it when it was first coming out, but but uh, I'm excited to kind of give the whole thing a, a, a fair shake. Well, in my mind, a, a good writer can turn chicken shit into chicken salad anyway. You know, there may not be a great idea, but someone might be able to find some value in it, turn it into something that's really compelling or interesting on its own terms. So, you know, I, I, I have no problem with that. I just would prefer that it didn't go down that route. Although, in retrospect, I do understand the importance of Supergirl. I do understand, especially, you know, after the success of the TV series, and what she has meant to young women and girls. And so I don't want to be 
chauvinistic and myopic and say there shouldn't be Supergirl, there shouldn't be, you know, it's not the case. I, I definitely understand her value. It's just that I really like this idea of Superman being the only one of his kind. And I, and I found that, I, I, I couldn't even tell you really why, but I found that immensely compelling and I still do. No, I'm with you. And I, and I, you know, I think what's, you know, what's kind of challenging about it is it's this weird sort of in-between. I think if they had really stuck with this post-crisis mandate of he's the sole survivor and you continue telling the stories that we got for issues one through 20 of this run, right? I think you're good to go. Alternatively, if they were going to reintroduce the genuine Kara Zor-El and, and Zod and Nan and Ursa, which they would later do in the right. 2000s, we would get those sure. stories eventually, right? Yeah. And so I think there is a way to have select Kryptonians be in the mix without going so far, you know, as they did pre-crisis where, you know, there's all these Kryptonians running around and, and, and all of that. So I think there is a balance that they could have had or they could have just kept him the sole survivor. But we ended up, the pocket universe was just kind of a, this weird in-between. Yeah, well, it was, they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, because remember, they also didn't want to do a multiverse. Right. You know, they, 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 that, that's not, it's, this is not just about Man of Steel. This is about DC in general. They didn't want to have, they had to call it a pocket universe or whatever, you know, because they didn't get, they couldn't call it Earth 5. You know, they couldn't call it Earth 6, which actually would have been better because then you could say, the Legion somehow in you know time space continuum with the, you know the Superboy that they were with was from a different universe and then some I mean, whatever but you get my point I think yeah. it's it's the other thing that I do want two other things I do want to point out one let's not forget that Superman was the last survivor of Krypton for a very long time before the silver age let's not forget that the, that was his basic concept at the beginning was that he i mean even his characterization of course was much different as we know but the idea of him that was steady all the way through the late the mid to late 50s yeah that's a great first, that's a great point you know so it's not like he has to have these things he didn't have them originally and if you go and watch the george reeves show there's none of that and it's 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 just it's Superman, and I find, you know, last year I, I finally watched the series from beginning to end, and I found that that I was completely charmed by it, and part of it was that it was because Superman was the exception to everybody else. He was Superman, and he wasn't watered down by other versions of the character, um, and I appreciated that. The other thing that is, I, I do want to say, because I've mentioned Byrne and his motivations a few times. Let me let me let me clarify a couple of things. It's only fair. I've never talked to John Byrne. I've interviewed a lot of comics creators. John Byrne is not one of them. I have met him very briefly. Um, didn't talk about this. Number one. Number two. There's two sides to every story. I don't know what DC's thinking was at the time that this was all going at. So when I've said all this stuff about Burn, a lot of the stuff is things I've heard over the years. A lot of the stuff is that I've read over the years. I'm sure that there's more nuance to any particular truth. And, I, and I, as we were talking and going on about this, I, I felt like I really needed to clarify that and have people understand that I am sure that there are others who feel differently and others who felt differently within DC about what Burn was doing. No, I, no, I appreciate that. And thank you for, uh, you know, for laying that out. Um, you know, all in all, I, like I said, I really enjoyed this, this read. I appreciate, you know, I appreciate what burned it. I, I had appreciated it earlier, but I, I can honestly say I enjoyed, you know, most of these stories 
And I really do, you know, admire the foundation that he laid, uh, you know, with this characterization of Clark and the supporting cast and this whole world that he built out that would, you know, continue to be the, you know, the, the bedrock of the super titles, you know, for, for years to come. One last uh, thing about the, the Zod thing, though, that I just wanted to mention. You know, as far as, you know, the DC trying to have their cake and eat it, too. I mean, they would continue doing this until finally Jeff Johns and Richard Donner introduced the, the, the quote-unquote genuine Zod from Krypton in their last right. Sun arc. Because there was, of course, the, the pocket universe version that we're talking about. Then during the Loeb Kelly era, there was Return to Krypton, which turned out to be uh, a construct of Brainiac 13. But there was a Zod right. at play there. Then Joe Kelly played around with another alternate version of Zod, who I believe was like a, a Russian human. He was human who had been genetically modified. Uh, and then Brian Azzarello did something with Zod in the For Tomorrow arc. So it's like we've had all these, all, you know, all these attempts to try to like have a Zod in play without it being the Zod. And um, yeah, again, I, I think it, it's just cleaner and more elegant when you when you can use the actual version. It, yeah, I mean, and that is, and that's of course the argument against Byrne to begin with is that my feeling is that there are there, what DC and Byrne may have done was they may have thrown out the baby with the bathwater in making him, even though it's my preference, in making him the sole survivor of Krypton as opposed to, you know, having the others because you probably could have had, you could have lived without Candor, you could have lived without the time travel, you could have done all of those things. But you still could have had the Phantom Zone. That would have been okay. I mean, it was if it was believable in Superman Two, it would, certainly would have been believable in the comics. Um, and you could still make a case for Supergirl too. Um, but the rest of it, I think, is I, I was glad that they dispensed with with a lot of that stuff. And I know that, that there are a lot of people who would want to string me up, in, including. Um, you know, Paul Kupperberg, who is uh, a uh, 13th Dimension contributor and a devoted Superman fan, particularly in the Silver Age. Um, actually, he and I have never talked about his thoughts on Burn. Um, we, we, I would actually like to talk to him about that. But I, um, I, I, it's just a, a take on the character overall that I prefer. And then, you know, there's one other thing that I forgot to mention that I liked, is that I like the idea that kryptonite could also affect humans because it actually scientifically makes sense that it's still radiation. It might not be as fatal. It may not be whatever. It may come, you know, affect humans more slowly. But the idea that that Lex has to lose his hand, you know, I thought was great. And the other thing that I thought was interesting that I, that struck me is that all of Lex's, um, all of Lex's uh, scientists and employees are women. I don't know if you noticed that, but yeah. I, it didn't hit me the first time around. But it's all. Women. I don't. I don't know how many men. Maybe occasionally here and there, but it's almost exclusively women. And I'm. I, I'm really curious as to what the thinking there was. I found it interesting and repellent at the same time, because the idea that it sort of felt like it felt it, it felt patrician to me. It felt creepy to me. But there was also something really interesting about that choice. And I, you know, if we had more time, I would, I would love to go down that road and talk more about it. Oh, that is an interesting point. And I mean, we see him with, with one of his, uh, you know, one of the scientists, I think, right. Who he insists that she spend the night with him. So it's like, yeah. I guess you get oh, the oh. sense that he, oh. that might, that seems so rough, especially post me too era yep. where this, this guy, and then it's like, they even show that not only just does he toy with people like he, did the woman at the diner and he's fighting with Superman. He's a sexual abuser. You know, he's, he, he is 
a sexual harasser and a sexual abuser too. I mean, this, this guy's got no redeeming qualities. Not to make light of what we're talking about, but frankly, that is the best Lex Luthor, the one without redeeming qualities. I so I, Sorry. I, I no I I, I guess I, it's, I know you like Michael Rosenbaum. I guess I it's like that's the thing. I guess it's maybe the the Smallville fan of me that does like some you know some redemption, uh, some potential for redemption for for Lex. But it, this Lex is is creepy, and yeah. um, we talked about this in in the other episode. But um, in the world of Metropolis miniseries. Uh, one of the issues focuses on Lois specifically, and we meet Lois when she's, and they explicitly state her age is like 14 or 15 when she's first trying to get a job at the Daily Planet, and then she breaks into LexCorp, and she's trying to spy. And, you know, and at some point she's, she's like changing and changing outfits, like while she's undisguised or something like that. And Lex makes this really creepy remark about how he's going to like hang on to the footage and enjoy it. I mean, it was, re it was so cringeworthy. Um, so well, that's, that's when, yeah. when I noticed that, yeah, when I noticed that it was all women, I thought to myself, this feels predatory. Mm -hmm. This doesn't feel like liberation. This doesn't feel like equality. This feels like control. That he didn't trust men as, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he, he, men in his mind, not reality, but in his mind, men are harder to control than women. Women can be intimidated more. Women can be controlled. Of course, that's a lot of bullshit, but I could see where a Lex Luthor would think that. You can, it's part of the character that Byrne, that Byrne wrote. And I thought, again, they never. It, it's more subtle uh, other than the instances we've mentioned, but I did find it noteworthy and something that, that really struck me that, frankly, when I first read these stories when I was 20, 19, 20 years old, um, I didn't even pick up on that at the time. Not the sexual harassment, yes, but like just the fact that they were all women, never even, and then the meaning of that didn't hit me until, of course, rereading it 35 years later when it struck me and I thought, this is really creepy and prescient at the same time. Not prescient, frankly, it was just showing what was going on in the world, but a lot of people were ignoring it. Yeah, but no, that is a great observation. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Is there anything else from this run that, uh, that we didn't get to that you wanted to, you want to talk about how Jimmy is such a mama's boy in, in these uh, issues? It's cute. It's like, Jimmy, I, I've never had much use for, but I, I think when he's done well, he can be really great. I, I love Jack Larson, for example. I think that he's a lot of fun. And I like this Jimmy. We didn't get enough of him. I thought that we didn't really see that much. I think Lois, um, I remembered her better than I thought she came off when I reread it this time. She didn't have as much depth as I think. And, and the thing is that she, she's given much more of that later on with other writers, which, which is important. Um, but I don't get the sense that, that Byrne had as good a handle on her. But really the one thing, and we've talked story, 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 but I just want to go back to what we said at the beginning, is that the one thing is like it is a beautiful run to read. The art is as perfect as it could be for Superman. No, to me, no, but still. Except you can make a case for Gary Frank because he draws Superman like Christopher Reeve. I don't think there's a, a, an artist who's ever, and, I, and, and please, the, the Kurt Swan people, please don't be upset with me. But John Byrne, to me, is, is, is the greatest Superman artist that ever lived. I, I, I've never looked at Superman with this, in the same eyes as the way Byrne did because to me I thought that he just was, it was the perfect version of the character. You know, Dan, on this podcast, I like to think that we create a safe space where we can share our opinions. And, and you know, look, I, I've shared some opinions that I know are probably counter what, to what maybe the majority of Superman fans might think. And, you know, guests have as well. I, it's, it's all it's this is digging for kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. And we each have our journey as Superman fans. And I think that's a that's a beautiful thing. I think it's all right. 
Well, it's just that I don't want anybody. The, the thing is, and this is something that's 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 really part of the foundation of Thirteenth Dimension, um, is that just because I like something doesn't mean that something else is bad. And I think that a lot of people, and I don't want to go too far off point with this, but a lot of the problem with fandom is that, and, and specifically, you see this really with Star Wars, is that if it doesn't hew to your personal vision of what you think it, it is, then it must be terrible. Or it must. My attitude is no. It's just something else. It's not. I, by saying that I think Burn is the greatest does not mean that I'm diminishing Kurt Swan's incredible uh, contributions to comic book art and to Superman in particular. But just on a aesthetic, purely personal level, I prefer John Byrne. Um, and I, I just want to make that clear because I, I, I always feel that it's important that you can build one person up. It doesn't mean you have to tear the other one down. And that's that's one of the things that I think is very important with what we do at Thirteenth Dimension. In the same way that you know people love Jack Kirby, and Jack Kirby's the king of comics, but I will take Neil Adams any day, and that's just my and that's not without recognizing Kirby's immense uh, importance to the world of comics and the world of popular culture. It's just when I look at a comic book, I want to read what you know similar to what a Neil Adams would do, which is follows because Byrne kind of comes from that same school of draftsmanship. No, I hear you. Uh, and listen, Dan, I really want to thank you for joining me to talk about this run of, of Superman comics. I appreciate you taking the time to reread and, and discuss. I'm glad the run held up for you. Uh, and I really appreciate all of the, the insight that you shared with us uh, on this episode. Absolutely. Anthony, anytime. You know, it's hard to shut me up when it comes to talking about comics. And even if Superman's not my favorite compared to Batman, get me started about talking about Superman and I could go on for more than an hour and a half. I could go on for another three hours. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's time to let your listeners have a break. <laughs> Uh, and I do want to encourage all of the listeners uh, and viewers to, to visit 13thdimension.com. Uh, I, I hope they will. And I want to thank you for the opportunities to write for your site. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, so thank you for having me uh, as, as a oh, writer sure. as well. Anytime. Uh, all right. Thank you, Dan. My thanks once again to Dan Greenfield. And make sure that you check out 13thdimension.com. We're back with part two of Crisis Till Death in one week. In one week, I will be joined by returning guest Bernie Gerstmeyer as we take a look at John Byrne's work on action comics during this period of time, as well as what Marv Wolfman, Jerry Ordway, and once again, John Byrne, were doing on the Adventures of Superman title. So Crisis Till Death continues in one week. I hope to see you then. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production, art by Greg Shegel, music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group, Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore more of my film and podcast projects.